Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back. Because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Hello? Hey, like, it's the 80s. Here you're having Russia problems. Ugh. Gag me with a spoon. I have some totally tubular ideas for you from our containment playbook to beat back those gnarly commies. Um, nice of you to call, but things have changed a little bit, so... As if. Don't have a cow, you dweeb. Like leg warmers and spandex, some things never go out of style. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Insane Level members Sam C, Cringy, Cindy S, Corey S, Nathan E, Michelle H, at W Jeremy D, at Eric Wagner 101, at Rob Nasby, at Ahsoka, at Nick G slash Cassie LMM and the Worry Clan, Nathan S, and Lance C. And today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pros, Handsome Sam, Chris D. Meister, Mike M, Celtic Apache, Dave D, and Nathan H. Before we get into today's show, I'm obviously happy to welcome Max back to the fold. And while I know he's anxious to get back up to speed with new episodes, we wanted to leave some space up top to talk about his unscheduled absence. Welcome back, Max. Well, thank you, 99. And thanks to both you and Manny for keeping the feed alive and allowing me a little space. And to the loyal unfuckers, let me apologize for dipping out rather unceremoniously, though you were obviously in good hands. The past couple of weeks, well, months really, have been difficult. Last week, we laid my mother to rest after a long illness. Loss is a part of life, so I won't belabor it. We all go through it and deal with it in different ways. And I've spoken of the contract between us, between host and listener, that I promise to uphold every week and thus I won't allow anything to get in the way of that. But I wanted to share this information with you because in a relatively short period of time, we've developed a true connection and forged a trust between us. And despite my anonymity, which borders on a gimmick at this point, but done for reasons that I've explained before, there is a person behind this microphone that is the product of the woman who just passed. My kids describe me as a man written by a woman. I think that's some sort of TikTok reference, by the way, but it's intended to portray me as an empath, a cheap derivation of assigned gender roles, I suppose, but it's something that I take wholeheartedly as a compliment because I was more than birthed by my mother. I was indeed written by her. She herself loved the written word and taught me to love it as well. She protected her corner of the world. She met people where they were. Showed me unconditional love and how to love unconditionally. In all ways, I'm a product of her generous design. And we were extraordinarily close. The people that know me best know this and understand that my world is shattered in the most beautiful way possible because we were committed to ensuring that we left nothing left unsaid between us. In some ways, I feel almost guilty 
that I was given too much, too much attention, too much love. And I'm sensitive to those who have lost loved ones and to those who were denied this type of maternal devotion. As for this moment, I'm filled with gratitude for her, for my family, friends, this team, and to all the unfuckers who posted well wishes and waited patiently for me to regain my footing. It was a gift to be there to help guide her and ease her out of this world. And I beg your indulgence while you guide and ease me back into this one so that I can be present in the moment. So, catch me up. What did I miss? Oh, um, not much, I guess. Uh, 99? Hmm, things that would interest you, Max. Let's see. Oh, we're talking to Venezuela about buying oil from them. That's right. And Biden is studying the value of crypto as a global currency. The Cold War is back on. That's kind of news. Crude oil? $115 a barrel? Vladimir Putin said nuclear war is a possibility. And baseball's in a lockout. What do you mean there's no baseball? Are you fucking kidding me? This is the Mets year. We have fucking Scherzer. Uh, if that's what you took from all this, then maybe you need more time. Let's go, Mets. UNFTR. A public service announcement for UNFTR listeners and to set Max's mind at ease. Shortly after this recording, MLB reached a tentative agreement with the Players Union, so the Mets will be reporting to spring training to begin their bid for the World Series Championship. Who writes this shit? Chapter 1. But what about... So I think it's fairly obvious that Ukrainian politics couldn't be further out of my lane, as you may well know. But there are so many parts of this story that will be familiar to unfuckers based upon some of the work that we've done together. So at the risk of straying out of our lane, I think it's important to weigh in on the current situation, especially as the fossil fuel chickens have come home to roost and are impacting Americans so dramatically. That's not to say that this will be entirely ethnocentric, as though there isn't a massive humanitarian crisis unfolding in Ukraine. That, above all, is the only narrative that truly matters right now. But as usual, the domestic pundit class is doing its level best to make this all about America. Let's start by putting the conflict in Ukraine in some historical perspective. For more on the war in Ukraine... An NBC Nightly News special report. Inside Ukraine... Missile strikes, paratroopers, and lines of tanks. We are on the ground this in Ukraine. is a CBS News special report. I'm Nora O'Donnell in Washington, and we are coming on the air because the war in Ukraine has begun. It's really important right now to be deliberate in your media choices. I've caught enough of the headlines to see the contortions pundits are going through to try and figure out who's to blame and what this all means. These are the moments when news literacy really matters, and we should do our best to rely upon sources with the most standing and insight. So I actually wanted to start by sharing my go-to sources for this type of world event. In terms of events on the ground, I think the best bet is to go directly to the wire services, like Reuters. It's no secret that the big news organizations have shuttered their foreign desks, so even if they're scrambling reporters to the region, it's hard to trust that they have the institutional knowledge to interpret events as they unfold. Most of them rely on services like Reuters and the Associated Press anyway, so best to go directly to the source. In terms of understanding the politics behind what's happening, I'm leaning on a few sources. The Intercept typically excels during these periods as they have a more global perspective. Jeremy Scahill, Murtaza Hussein, these are quality journalists who have a pretty wide lens when it comes to international and military affairs. 
To contextualize crises such as this, I tend to fall back on independent intellectuals like Naomi Klein and Chris Hedges, whom we're going to hear from in a moment. Over in the Substack universe, I can't say enough about Adam Tooze and his economic analyses. And I think Matt Taibbi will also have valuable input because he actually spent time as a reporter in Russia and even speaks the language, if I'm not mistaken. He recently published a mea culpa for being blindsided by Putin's aggression, which I really respect. So I think anything you read from him will be pretty well researched and on point from this point forward. And from a news perspective, I personally like Al Jazeera for this because it removes the normal Anglo sheen from the general reportage, though I'll make my own assessments of what's happening in terms of fossil fuels, and more on that in a bit. So let's start with Hedges to frame the discussion and level set on what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, it was completely unanimous in the understanding that expanding NATO beyond Germany's borders would be a provoca unnecessary provocation. Remember, NATO was created uh, to protect European countries from a Soviet incursion. Uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, NATO uh, should have been rendered obsolete. And then there were a series of other violations. Uh, President Clinton had promised the uh, Russian government that NATO troops would not be stationed in Europe. Now we have thousands of NATO troops. The Minsk agreement uh, was never uh, implemented. So there were a series of violations of betrayals that I think stoked the conflict. All that said, to understand is not to condone. What uh, Russia has done is an act of preemptive war. Uh, it is a war crime uh, under post-Nuremberg laws. It's defined as a criminal war of aggression. So they were baited, but they pulled the trigger. And, and it is their crime. So there are a few really important ideas to unpack here as we prepare to dig further into the conflict. The first thing to address is the conclusion of this clip, something that I think the mainstream media is actually getting right. To explain is not to excuse. We can endeavor to understand the Russian perspective without sacrificing our outrage over their aggression. Now, two concepts that I've heard repeated over and over in the past couple weeks are Manichaean and but what about? The first is an idea that harkens back to Manichaeism, an ancient religion that was prominent in the Middle East and Asia before Islam swept that part of the world. It's intended to draw a distinction between pure good and pure evil, essentially warning against promoting a narrative that Putin is pure evil and all external forces are good, or vice versa as Putin attempts to portray Ukraine as a militant state overtaken by Nazi forces. The but whatabouts are those attempting to downplay Russia's intervention by reminding the world that the West, America in particular, has been guilty of similar actions in the recent past, most notably with respect to our invasion and occupation of Iraq. I think these self-reflections are actually positive. There's no force of pure light in this scenario. There's no force of pure darkness. Those types of narratives are unproductive and keep us from fully understanding what's happening on the ground. If we're to succumb to some sort of Manichaean portrait of this conflict, then it presumes that all diplomatic efforts are firmly off the table, as evil cannot be understood or reasoned with. But the but what about arguments are relevant as much as the liberal and conservative media would like to refute this. It seems that only the far left, or what people characterize as the far left, understands that if a diplomatic solution is ever to be attainable, we might have to take a backseat to those negotiations as we don't exactly have the moral high ground given our propensity to overthrow nations in defiance of international law. 
I've noticed pundits and commentators bristle at this, but it's important because of how we've conducted ourselves in recent decades, but it also pertains to this conflict. We played a definitive role in what has transpired in Ukraine, partly by ignorance and partly through arrogance. Of course, the right would like us all to believe that a strongman only responds to a strongman, which is why this invasion didn't happen under Donald Trump. Now, of course, Putin didn't attack Ukraine under Trump because he knew that America was stronger and more practical under his leadership. Trump was a pro-energy nationalist who wasn't about to get rolled into supporting Russia's natural gas pipeline into Europe. It's a lovely narrative, but merely a distraction. Had there been no pandemic and Trump was reelected, I suspect he would have ordered air support for Putin. No, our missteps happened long ago and continued unabated from Bush Sr. to present day. To understand this is to go back to what Hedges was saying about NATO. The long and the short of it is that NATO should have been disbanded when the Soviet Union collapsed. Even George Kennan, the chief architect of containment theory, the concept that guided our policy toward the Soviets for the entirety of the Cold War, believed that this was the way to go. I want to read a couple of passages from Kennan's now infamous long telegram that informed his theory. Quote, The Russian leaders are keen judges of human psychology, and as such, they are highly conscious that loss of temper and of self-control is never a source of strength in political affairs. They're quick to exploit such evidences of weakness. For these reasons, it's a sine qua non of successful dealing with Russia that the foreign government in question should remain at all times cool and collected and that its demands on Russian policy should be put forward in such a manner as to leave the way open for a compliance not too detrimental to Russian prestige, end quote. See, Kennan understood the Russian mindset, which hasn't changed all that much since the onset of the Cold War. Their leaders have been cold and calculating for sure, but they've also proven to be more open to diplomatic persuasion and communication than strong-arm tactics that might otherwise embarrass them. Saving face is tantamount to success. Of course, Putin is a different caliber of leader, more in the vein of Stalin than Lenin. More precisely, I suppose, we should go all the way back to Nicholas. He clearly sees himself as a czar more than the head of a Politburo, no matter his allegiance to Yeltsin for putting him in this position. He has great disdain for communism or any form of collectivism. He's a pure autocrat intent on enriching himself and wielding power. His goal is to reign over a great territory defined in his mind as reunification of former Soviet glory. He's a catastrophically corrupt and inept economic leader as he failed to institute any economic reforms that would break Russia from the grips of a petrostate, its sole source of economic power. These nuances aside, Kennan's words remain true in that Putin is a classically cool Russian statesman that wouldn't respond to bluster and force. Ultimately, if we're to navigate an acceptable solution in this region, it will have to be through clever diplomacy. Chapter 2. Where did we leave our Cold War playbook? Our inability to understand the Russian mindset is a reflection of our feeble foreign policy. 
Not one where we reject force and strongman tactics of our own, but the fact that we no longer maintain a professional diplomatic class that understands adversaries and allies alike. We have fully assumed the arrogant stance of a great power that still believes it can bend the world to its will. No matter how disastrous our engagements, we're seemingly incapable of facing the reality that our foreign entanglements since World War II, perhaps with the exception of the Cold War, have failed miserably every single time. Point to one intervention, occupation, assassination, or war that has been successfully prosecuted with a clear intent and positive outcome. It doesn't exist. Because we believe our own hype and our press that we are infallible, unbeatable, and always righteous. The simplest explanation for our success, if you can call it that, in prevailing in the Cold War is Kennan's belief that containing the Soviet Empire to the post-war borders would inevitably lead to collapse so long as we exercised patience. Again, Kennan, quote, And as long as they are not overcome, Russia will remain economically a vulnerable and in a certain sense an impotent nation capable of exporting enthusiasms and of radiating the strange charm of its primitive political vitality, but unable to back those articles of export by the real evidences of material power and prosperity." End quote. Kennan understood that the mechanisms of the communist regime would ultimately fail against the backdrop of an increasingly productive and expansionist economic capitalist system taking root everywhere but the Soviet states. Now, we can litigate Kennan's failure to apply his theory with respect to the war in Vietnam or how he was actually more enthralled with Russian culture and dismissive of American culture, which he considered shallow and hedonistic, marked by rampant consumerism and a false sense of nationalistic pride. As the estimable Louis Menon wrote of Kennan years ago in The New Yorker, quote, and when he imagined the day that the Iron Curtain lifted, a day that his own policy recommendations were intended to bring about, he dreaded what would happen to the Russians after being exposed to the wind of material plenty and its debilitating and insidious breath. Although he long advocated the reunification of Germany, he took little satisfaction when it happened. It was just the result, he thought, of agitation by young East Germans motivated by the hope of getting better jobs, making more money, and bathing in the flesh pots of the West. He wondered whether this was what we had really wanted when we set out, more than 40 years before, to wage a Cold War." End quote. But the bottom line is that his intense knowledge of the Russian people and understanding that the Soviet perversion of communism was inherently flawed proved the containment theory would ultimately produce the outcome the West desired. Baked into this awareness was an acknowledgement that Russia had a very valid historical rationale to prevent any encroachment on its territory, and that includes Ukraine. Ukraine is an enormous buffer zone in Eastern Europe with abundant agricultural resources and access to the sea and other critical parts of the continent. Yes, it's a fully independent state deserving of self-determination today, but there's a fraternal bond forged in blood that we don't fully appreciate. There's something else that we don't think about enough with respect to the Russian experience prior to the Cold War that pervades Russian policy and persists in its people. Russia, as it was territorially defined for the first half of the 20th century, was constantly under threat from outside forces. As a matter of fact, they were constantly under threat throughout all of history, from the Ottoman Empire all the way through to the Western expansion of the European states. So for context, the United States lost more than a half a million Americans in World War II. Dig this. The Russians lost in excess of 25 
million. Now think about that for a moment and how that impacts a national psyche. Under Soviet rule, they had another 40 years to remind their people that it was the communist army that sacrificed the most to vanquish the Nazis and save the world from Hitler. You can't simply undo something so deeply ingrained in a people just by exposing them to blue jeans and MTV. So when NATO wasn't disbanded after the collapse as the world promised it would be, it was a diplomatic thumb in the eye. As a Brookings article from 1999 points out, quote, George F. Kennan had called the expansion of NATO into Central Europe the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Kennan believed, as did most other Russia experts in the United States, that expanding NATO would damage beyond repair U.S. efforts to transform Russia from enemy to partner, end quote. You see, NATO is a pure military construct. It doesn't exist to govern trade or anything of the sort. It existed to create a balance of power to the Soviet state that should therefore have been disbanded when the Iron Curtain fell. As the decades wore on and adjacent states to Russia were admitted to NATO, it only served to provoke the Russians further. When we allowed bases and weapons installations in these territories, it moved from diplomatic provocation to threat. And when we allowed for the possibility, no matter how remote, that Ukraine might someday be part of NATO, it gave Putin the opening to claim that Russia was being surrounded by military force. Again, this is posturing on both sides. Just as Obama didn't believe in that debate with Romney that Russia was a modern threat, the West blithely mistook any inaction as acceptance. That was until Crimea was annexed amidst a disinformation campaign on the part of the Russians and the ultimate gaslighting experiment that became a proving ground for Russian disinformation campaigns, one that we know all too well that they've become very good at. It's why Putin does have pockets of support within Russia. By tapping into toxic nostalgia of Soviet glory, he's pushing a hot button among a large segment of the Russian population that is subjected to a daily barrage of Russian bullshit. Much like much of the US population believes the false narratives propagated by US oligarchs that control the media landscape here at home. Chapter three, the blame game. Well, Maria, there's a, a truth of history that weakness arouses evil. When you look at the record of uh, this administration, it's almost inarguable that the unilateral capitulation to Russia on Nord Stream 2, on a new START treaty, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, all created the conditions where Putin uh, felt emboldened uh, to once again try and redraw the lines of Europe. Well, someone unzipped the mouth of former Vice President Mike Pence's gimp mask long enough for him to speak with Maria Bloahardo this week. Mustering up his best impression of a human, Pence dutifully reviewed the right-wing talking points that make no fucking sense. But the right knows this and knows that their audience doesn't know the difference. We fucked up Nord Stream 2, took it in the ass on the new START treaty, and showed the world how weak we are by pulling out of Afghanistan. Of course, the biggest message is that Biden alone is somehow responsible for the price of oil while simultaneously trying to kill us by buying oil from foreign nations. He wants us to stop producing oil and gas, give up our energy independence, and his new policy is that we should buy oil and gas from foreign countries that hate us, like Russia, 
So those foreign countries will have more money to buy weapons to try to kill us. And that he's waging war on the fossil fuel industry by admonishing oil companies. So Biden could have been open arms and generous. Instead, he was his usual mean and nasty self with a bizarre radical left attack on our fossil fuel industry. Take a listen to this. But, 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 it's no excuse to exercise excessive price increases or padding profits or any kind of effort to exploit this situation or, Amer or American uh, consumers, exploit them. Russia's aggression is costing us all and it's no time for profiteering or price gouging. So let's quickly dismantle these talking points so we can keep the conversation on point. As you can imagine, I'm chomping at the bit to dig into crude prices. So Nord Stream 2, the fact that it's number two should tell you there's already a Nord Stream 1, just like there's already a Keystone Pipeline. Don't get me started. The media breathlessly covered how twisted the United States was over the prospect of Nord Stream 2, which would effectively bypass Ukraine and bring natural gas more directly into Germany, Russia's largest customer. As it stands, Russia has to pay billions in fees to Ukraine for the existing pipeline access. So it made an economic decision to control the flow of gas and cut the fees substantially. So the setup here is that the U.S. was in a pickle. Do we support a pipeline that fucks Ukraine but saves our German allies and the Russians a fuck ton of money? Or do we attempt to block the construction of the pipeline as Ted Cruz has been trying to do? How about this? We have no fucking say in this one way or another. It has nothing to do with oil prices. Nothing to do with energy independence or national security or any other bullshit talking point that they can cook up. We don't get our oil or gas from Russia. We don't. This is a sovereign nation making a sovereign economic decision. You don't have to like that answer, but it's a fact. Fuck you, Ted Cruz. The New START Treaty Signed in 2010, designed to limit nuclear arms in the US and Russia. A pretty solid fucking idea, even if it's literally the bare fucking minimum. The Trump administration couldn't get it done. Couldn't get the extension signed. But Biden got it done, as is. So now the right is trying to rewrite recent history by saying that Trump was playing hardball. Well, he wasn't. His State Department was just that fucking inept. Nothing more to see here. Move on. Fuck you, Mike Pence. We signaled weakness to Russia by leaving Afghanistan. I'll just leave this one here. Good evening. The retreat of Soviet military power from Afghanistan is complete. The last of Russia's regular army invasion force is out. Fear and uncertainty were mixed with joy today as the commander of Soviet troops followed the last of his men across the border, leaving the communist Afghan regime alone to face victorious resistance fighters. Fuck you again, Mike Pence. How about Senator John Kennedy's assertion that Biden wants us to stop producing oil and buy it from countries that want to kill us? I really don't know what to say here. I, I, I don't. We're the largest oil and gas producer in the world. We have proven reserves and strategic reserves. We control the financial markets that drive fossil fuel prices. We're a net exporter of fossil fuels. We have approved drilling licenses that oil and gas companies are just sitting on and not using. Less than 2% of the oil that we import into the United States comes from Russia, and it's ceremonial more than anything to demonstrate good faith in the past. 
Biden reaching out to the Maduro administration in Venezuela is bizarre, I'll grant you that. But if anything, it's his weird way of showing the world that we have options, even if we don't need them. The bottom line is that everything Kennedy is saying here is complete and utter horseshit. Fuck you, John Kennedy. Uh, why would you say uh, fuck you to me? I'm long dead. Not you. My bad, carry on. Lastly, Kudlow claiming that because Joe Biden told oil companies not to use the war in Ukraine as an excuse to fleece Americans at the pump, he's somehow waging war on our beloved fossil fuel industry? I think unfuckers have this one down, so let's just skip directly to the fuck you. Fuck you, Larry Kudlow. Now, having said that, it's time to face the music and dig once again into oil prices. Because we did a lot of work on this recently, you're ready for a pretty revolutionary concept and a story that I think you'll really enjoy on, fuckers. Chapter 4. Oil and Onions One of my favorite stories from Emily Lambert's book, The Futures, involves onions. Yes, onions. Sam Siegel owned cold storage facilities on the outskirts of Chicago, which held and distributed, among other things, onions delivered by farmers from around the country. Vincent Kasuga was a boisterous, larger-than-life farmer and amateur chef from the Catskills who grew onions that would find their way to Siegel's warehouse. According to those who knew him, the man could cook just about anything, as long as the recipe called for onions. Perhaps his greatest concoction, however, was the scheme Kasuga cooked up while trading onions on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the Merc for short, with his storage partner turned accomplice, Sam Siegel. Both men made good money hedging their onion farming and gathering operations by trading onion futures in the 1950s at the Merc. Like most of the men they traded alongside, Siegel and Kasuga possessed iron constitutions for risk. To outsiders, theirs was a bizarre world, filled with a ragtag bunch of gamblers who spoke furiously with their hands, called one another by their trading nicknames, and kept mostly to themselves. It was an insular existence. Then one day, Siegel and Kasuga's activities drew an unwelcome light on the clandestine world of commodities trading. According to Lambert, here's how it went down. Because Kasuga controlled a large portion of onion growth, and both men had the capacity to store excess supply, along with the financial wherewithal to purchase contracts for delivery from other onion growers, they effectively controlled the price when the product came to market. It was a classic corner. When the harvest came in 1956, they bet against the same growers they contracted with by placing sell orders in the Merck while simultaneously dumping their excess inventory, thereby flooding the market with onions and driving prices into the ground. In an instant, Siegel and Kasuga made millions while farmers went broke, buyers were left bewildered, and onions were rendered worthless. Their plan worked so well that President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Onions Futures Act in 1958 to prevent the trading of onions forever. Onions, it seemed, were too important to the American way of life to allow unscrupulous speculators to monkey with. Remember this story as we once again work through what's happening with oil prices today. Chapter 5 
So as of this writing, oil is $115 a barrel. Absolute fucking bullshit. If you're new here, I offer this full-throated bullshit because unfuckers sat through an excruciating episode all about how crude oil is priced. We walk through Leo Melamed's creation at the Merck to trade everything from dollars to heating oil to Jeffrey Sprecher's intercontinental exchange being recognized as a foreign exchange by the Bush administration, even though it's based in Atlanta. And this essentially allowed for rampant speculation fueled by leverage to pump up trading volumes on commodities. We talked about the unholy alliance of oil companies and investment banks who make money when prices go up, when prices go down, and everywhere in between because they're the ones manipulating the pricing. But surely this is different, right, Max? After all, there's a war on, and Russia is the second largest producer of oil in the world. How about this? No, it's not different. Not yet, at least. Right here and right now, nothing has changed, and yet oil prices are double what they were pre-pandemic during the same time period. Double. Again, I'm not talking about tomorrow or the next day. I'm talking about right fucking now. Manny, what time is it? Oh, it is right fucking now. Right. The largest buyer of Russian oil and gas, the European Union, has pledged to cut the purchase of Russian oil. Pledged. And the UAE has already stepped in to say OPEC would increase production to try and offset the potential loss of Russian oil on the market. Later. If necessary. Not when 99? Right fucking now. Right fucking now, the world's oil producers are making out like bandits. And by the way, that includes Russia. You heard me. That includes Russia. As Adam Tooze writes, quote, The overall figure matters because in gas, the flow continues unabated and with European customers now paying even more exorbitant prices, Russia is benefiting from a staggering surge in revenue. According to Javier Blas of Bloomberg, at the start of the year, Russia was earning $350 million per day from oil and $200 million per day from gas. On March 3, 2022, Europe paid $720 million to Russia for gas alone. End quote. Let's go back to basics for a moment. The world is drawing down on reserves, but also increasing production. At the moment, and in all projections, supply is forecast to meet demand, regardless of interruptions or sanctions. What this should indicate is that global prices have the ability to remain stable. The dollar is stable and is, in fact, back to pre-pandemic levels. So the two primary rational inputs to crude oil pricing, supply and demand and dollar value, are stable. Would taking Russian oil off the global market impact pricing? Absolutely. But it hasn't happened yet, which means the increase in pricing is related to fear, maybe, being baked into spot pricing for crude. So let's think about this rationally for a moment, then return to the lesson that we learned in our crude oil episode. And then later, we'll revisit Sam Siegel, Vincent Kasuga, and Leo Melamed to drive this motherfucker home. Crude oil prices in the 50s and 60s remained relatively flat throughout the largest expansion of the U.S. economy in history. Then along came the 70s. Historians point to the dual shocks in Iran as the reason that oil prices hit two separate peaks, and they're right. The embargo and the revolution are indeed the inflection points of these spikes, which took oil first from the 20s to the 60s range, then towards the end of the decade from the low 60s to a high of 137 a barrel. Were these spikes related to the disruptions? 
Yes, but the relative severity of the increases outpaces anything we experienced during the Second World War and the post-war economic boom. So these spikes in the 70s are real because there was a actual supply disruption. Through embargoes and sanctions, we literally removed a significant amount of supply from the market and prices went haywire. So now let's go back to Leo Melamed for a second. When Melamed created the market for fossil fuels to be traded on the IMM at the Merck, the volume was very small. Essentially, there was no one to buy the contracts because the idea of hedging oil futures was alien to oil and energy companies. Then came the spikes in the 70s. Even the small number of contracts made a fortune because volatility is the trader's friend. It wasn't enough to convince the energy companies just yet though, but not for lack of trying. Here's Lambert again from the futures. Quote, to drum up business, some New Yorkers paid a visit to Texas. The exchange sent some pretty young women to explain the concept of futures to men at oil companies. Brokers also went to Houston and ably entertained oil executives at the state's great natural wonder, strip clubs. However, others like Steve Herrera, who had left the exchange and set up an energy brokerage business, gave seminars about futures markets. He gave many of them, including a three-hour talk at Exxon, where two lawyers and 30 people listened carefully." End quote. You see, it's all a game to them. It's a casino. Except the house staked the players with your money and put the odds in their favor. It's a rigged system, and you're not in on it. I want to read a quick passage from Naomi Klein, who, as usual, perfectly encapsulates the disease that accompanies our oil and gambling addiction. Quote, Though petrodollars underwrite these players and forces, it's critical to understand that oil is a stand-in for a broader worldview, a cosmology deeply entwined with manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery, which ranked human as well as non-human life inside a rigid hierarchy with white Christian men at the top. Oil, in this context, is the symbol of the extractivist mindset, not only a perceived God-given right to keep extracting fossil fuels but also the right to keep taking whatever they want, leave poison behind, and never look back." End quote. So come back with me for a second to ponder the price of oil. Think of Sam Siegel and Vincent Kasuga, how Eisenhower and Congress responded when it was discovered that they were fucking with the price of onions, banned forever from futures tradings, onions, a matter of national security, too precious to be fucked with. Forever banned from the exchanges, now think of all of the harm that's been caused in the world by allowing petrostates to extract fossil fuels from the ground and endless profits from our wallets. Chapter 5. Bring it home, Max. Vladimir Putin is a murderer and a dictator. Now, he's a mass murderer and a war criminal. Prior aggressions and war crimes carried out by the United States do not change this fact. A war on the European continent is horrifying given the history of world wars that began in this part of the world. It's estimated that the United States war in Iraq killed 200,000 Iraqi civilians. When you include Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen in these figures, the United States is responsible for killing nearly 900,000 people over the past 20 years with reverberation death tolls thought to be much higher. Our prior protracted war killed 2 million Vietnamese civilians, 1.1 million North Vietnamese fighters, 
and 200,000 South Vietnamese soldiers. Nearly 400,000 people have been killed in South Sudan since 2013. Peruse the conflict tracker on the Council of Foreign Relations website someday to review conflicts in the world ranked by whether or not they're of any importance to us. I find it a sobering but rather honest read. Russia is a nuclear power, and its leader publicly stated that he would use nuclear weapons if he felt it was necessary. I'm not minimizing this at all. No one in a position of authority should ever talk about using nuclear weapons. Senator Cruz, you have said you would, quote, carpet bomb ISIS into oblivion, testing whether, quote, sand can glow in the dark. Does that mean leveling the ISIS capital of Raqqa in Syria, where there are hundreds of thousands of civilians? I was against Iraq. I'd be the last one to use the nuclear weapon. So can you take it off the table that's now? sort of like the end can of the Can you tell game. the Middle East we're not using the nuclear weapon? I would never anybody? say that. I would never take any of my cards off the table. This isn't a but what about. This is a cold, hard reality that when a superpower talks about using nuclear weapons against brown people or when it carries out an unprovoked invasion and occupation and kills hundreds of thousands to millions of brown people or when black and brown people fight against one another, causing a humanitarian crisis and hundreds of thousands of casualties, the white Western world is pretty fucking silent. White on white crime, on the other hand, that is a sin, a cardinal sin. The diplomatic end to this conflict is pretty evident and straightforward. Disband NATO. If we use Kennan's logic regarding the Russian psyche, this is the diplomatic end that would allow them to save face. Of course, we'll never do that because the flip side of the psychological coin is that we're the masters of cutting off our nose to spite our face in an attempt to save it. 20 years in Vietnam with no clear objective. 20 years in Afghanistan with no clear objective. We've ceded policy designed to the military-industrial complex and have eliminated the diplomatic class of politicians in this nation, leaving us incapable of navigating any channel that doesn't involve a military solution. We could end price gouging of fossil fuels tomorrow if we had the courage to wrest control of the financial markets from the gamblers and speculators who run it today. If only we considered fossil fuel as vital to our national security and economic interests as we did onions. Relics of yesteryear like commodity exchanges and NATO have ossified and become institutionalized. We no longer possess the political imagination or intelligence to extract ourselves from these harmful ideas that cause more heartache to the public than any good they ever did because they serve to benefit the wealthy, neoliberal class of corporate oligarchs in this and other Western nations who profit from our misery. And all we're left with is the toxic rhetoric of failed military and neoliberal states that leverage the power of corporately owned media to sell us lies and distract us from the realities they created. A reality that left a madman in charge of Russia, who is incapable of developing an economic model beyond petroleum, a madman willing to annihilate a fraternal nation, threaten nuclear war, and sacrifice his own people as pawns in his twisted game. A reality that leaves oil and gas companies and Wall Street traders in charge of oil prices. A reality that has effectively removed any talk of saving the planet from the global discourse. It's an old adage to ask, Who's benefiting from a situation 
And in the case of Ukraine, it's pretty clear. Oligarchs, both foreign and domestic, the military-industrial complex, and Wall Street. In good times and in bad, they hold the high ground and have a winning playbook all at the expense of the people they control. NATO is a relic. Treat oil like we did onions. And thanks for welcoming me back, unfuckers. I missed you. Here endeth the lesson. Hope you enjoyed the episode on fuckers. Once again, thank you for your patience and thank you for welcoming me back into the fold. And thanks to Manny and 99, as usual, for locking it down. So recall that we are doing show notes separately. So you'll see that appear in the feed probably Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, We haven't really determined which date is going to be optimal for us. But Tuesday or Wednesday this week, look out for show notes. Adding a couple of cutting room floor items into show notes as well. Particularly this week is going to be some brief thoughts on cryptocurrency because that's back into the news. And it actually plays into this. I originally had it scheduled for this episode, but I felt like it was distracting from the overall narrative. So I'm going to hit that a little bit in show notes, which will serve as a primer for future episodes. Now, in terms of book love, and once again, thank you to 99 for putting together the compendium of book love that we had last week in the feed. That was very, very cool and interesting to revisit all of the books that we've gone through together. By the way, unfuckers, has anybody started a UNFTR book club? Can you let us know if you have, please? Book love for this week, there's really just two because we relied on a lot of articles. Even though some of the articles were older, it's really interesting to go back to the old New Yorker article or to the old Brookings article that we referenced in the show because it demonstrates sort of the the mindset of the United States at that time in reflecting on the containment theory, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it's a good real-time reminder of, of what we were thinking. But for Book Love, we have American Diplomacy by George Kennan. So American Diplomacy as a book is an expansion on what is known as the Long Telegram and the, I think it's it's called the X article that appeared in Foreign Affairs that was written anonymously by Kennan, but he was outed almost immediately because everybody knew that he was the only one that would be capable of writing something this profound. So it also includes lectures that he gave toward the end of the Cold War. So all of that is pulled together into this book, American Diplomacy, which is really now, I think, the seminal work if you want to understand the mindset of Kennan and uh, the theory of containment and the futures by Emily Lambert. Quoted it before, I love this book. It is told in almost entirely through these magnificent anecdotes that pull you inside the world of commodities trading, which is the strangest piece of Wall Street, even most Wall Street traders, most Wall Street professionals, I guess, in, in the in the banking and investment banking class, still don't understand commodities trading. It's a wild, wild world, and I think that's why I'm so fascinated by it. And The Futures is the book that really, really brought me into it in a way that I could then wrap my mind around who these people were to you know further explore certainly oil and gas, but all of the other commodities that we trade. Now, in terms of pod love, I didn't mention it in the episode, but Best of the Left did a almost a two-hour episode. Well, actually, some of that is for patrons only, but they pulled clips regarding Ukraine 
from a ton of really quality sources. So this episode hopefully was kind of a good mindset primer to contextualize what's actually happening in Ukraine from a European perspective, from a Russian perspective, and the failure of our own diplomatic apparatus within the United States as it stands presently. But that best of the left episode, which we'll link in show notes, is outstanding. If you really, really want to understand and learn what's happening, I would definitely highly recommend checking that out. So that is all for now. We'll see you midweek with show notes. And as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media, the master of sound design. It's good to have you back, Spider-Man. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. I forgot I was supposed to say something. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by me and distributed with love. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. I should say, a lot happened in my absence. We had, uh, if you notice up top, so many new members to the show, insane members, pro members. I mean, just a torrent of goodwill coming our way, which I can't even begin to thank you for. So, yeah. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. You got a healthy dose of that in uh, last week's show from 99. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. We have the new Mellow Maynard blend, which flew off the shelves, and every blend that we produce with our partners at the Uncachog Nation, also available in Holbein. And read our essays on unftr.substack.com. Remember, it will always be free.